Welcome back to Cyberology, Dakota State's podcast for all things cyber and technology. I'm your host, Jen Burris, and we have a very special episode in store for you for a few reasons. Um, so this will be our first ever video recording, as you can see. And uh, more importantly, I have two really amazing DSU faculty members as our co-hosts today and a very distinguished guest. So I'm happy to welcome Kanti Narukanda as a co-host today. Kanti is an assistant professor in the Beacom College and director of the Cyber Institute, where she manages undergraduate students who serve as cyber leaders. So with a passion for cybersecurity, she's earned degrees in cyber defense and embedded systems engineering, and is currently pursuing her PhD in cyber defense. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very, very excited to be here. Do you wanna uh, tell us a little bit about Cyper and yourself? Yes, so um, Cyper was founded in 2013, so we're celebrating 10 years oh. of being able to do a lot of outreach with young women and uh, young girls as well to bring awareness about cybersecurity because we want them to understand cybersecurity is more than you know the dark basement and the hoodie and the clacking away at the keyboard. And to this effect, we do a lot of outreach with K through 12 students so they understand what cybersecurity is and when they're adults, they can pursue the field. So to date, we've impacted about 45,000 students. Um, Very impressive. Okay, and our other co-host for today is Jason Jenkins, who is also a faculty member in the Beacom College. Jason has over 20 years of IT-related experience. Amazing. And um, some of that includes network administration, hardware and software support, software and web development, and more. Jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, so he's earned bachelor's degree in computer science and math and a master's in information assurance and is currently completing his PhD in cyber defense as well. Excellent. So thank you for joining us, Jason. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I I think most, you know, students are listening. You know, a lot of folks on campus know me for teaching like software engineering, um, optic-oriented design, sometimes web development or software security. But, you know, just kind of looking forward to, I guess, kind of my research agenda or I'm trying to kind of tackle some of our cybersecurity problems from the software developer standpoint and how I can, you know, solve that if it's tools, education, process. Not entirely sure yet, but that's kind Excellent. of where I'm at in my um, academic journey. So. Sure. We'll have to have you come in and talk about your research sometime then, yeah, too. Sounds good. Okay. <clears throat> I'm thrilled to introduce our distinguished guest today, Major General David Gaidica. Who um, And so he has an extensive and illustrious career in cybersecurity. Um, so you recently retired from the U.S. Air Force, correct? Correct. And um, you served as vice commander of the 16th Air Force, Air Force Cybers, at the Joint Base in San Antonio, Lackland, in Texas, where it looks like you um, were preparing a lot of employees for all sorts of um, cyber concerns. Um, so we're really impressed with that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you've been doing for all these years? Sure, absolutely. Um, so yes, I did, as, as you mentioned, I just retired officially on the 1st of September. So just, uh, um, so now I'm a, I'm a mister and enjoying life uh, 2.0. Um, and so after 18 assignments and, and, uh, and 30 years of service, really excited to be here talking to the Dakota State University audience an opportunity to talk to them about uh, what we're doing here. I think, you know, as you alluded to, um, for the, you know, for the most of your students looking at 
different opportunities within the IT space or within cyberspace. Lots of opportunity in my last organization as a 16th Air Force and Air Force's cyber. Uh, at the same time, we also had a direct relationship with the National Security Agency and roles there. And I know that that's something else that's important to many of your students and the roles that they'll do or potential employers in the, in the future. So uh, look forward to the opportunity to talk about any of that as well. Excellent. So I am going to hand it over to Conti and Jason for uh, questions. So take it away. So we have this lovely list of questions uh, right. for you. Um, as Jen mentioned, and as you mentioned, you have a you've had a distinguished career in the Air Force with a strong emphasis on cyber and information warfare. Can you share your perspective on how the role of cybersecurity has evolved uh, within the military over the years and how it has become increasingly critical to national security? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been a tremendous evolution as we look at, at technology and how it's evolved as well. And if I look back to the beginning of when I started my service in the in the initial 90s to where we've come today, just so many of the concepts concepts have changed. Even you think about things as simple as air gap. You used to be it was closed networks. The only way into a network was if you were physically plugged into it because it was this system and you could have multiple enclaves all over the place. And relatively safe just by uh, the physical barriers that did or didn't exist. Today, that's changed considerably. When you think about everybody is on Wi-Fi, I would suspect there's four phones in the room, and uh, and we're all connected through potentially different uh, services as well. And so that creates the uh, the vulnerable space that's out there. And so we have to be you know able to defend all of that. I think one of the other things philosophically that we're looking at is the difference between the old castle moat kind of a design, right? You build a castle, you put a moat around it, and then you try to defend it. Uh, that's a significant challenge in this day and age, and that's where ideas like zero trust uh, principles have come forward. How do you protect your data versus how do you protect your network? And I think people are responding, and there's opportunity there. And um, with the with the rise of data and data science, lots of opportunity. And I know from your students as well that are probably studying many of those different things. All right. Uh, so getting into the student side of things a little more, how do you think our students can have an impact on protecting the critical infrastructure of our country? That's a great question. And I think one of the things that's really important that you that, to acknowledge in that question is, is that critical infrastructure across our nation? Because it is more than, you know, the Department of Defense that I grew up in. And there's a lot more to it that's really important to us. And it's report, important to everybody, not just people that live in the state of, you know, South Dakota, but across our nation. Uh, that, that critical infrastructure um, also is vulnerable. And we wouldn't want to have an adversary that's, um, that tries to disrupt those services for our public or, in, you know, in, in my case, when I was in uniform with, with our military or defense as well. When you look at the students, how can they do this? We need those innovative thinkers. We need people to think about it differently. The ones that are studying new ideas that have those opportunities to do it and understanding the creative minds that you see. I've, I've heard of recent wins with members of uh, DSU, students of DSU that have been on teams that have winning national um, awards. Those are the type of people we need. And it doesn't matter if it's an industry, it doesn't matter it's if it's studying in a research institution, whether it's serving in the government, whether in the military or as a civilian, a civil service. We need those people, we need those sharp folks, and we need them to help us um, to, to advance, to stay ahead of both, um, you know, 
adversaries at the national level, but also that we've seen a rise in cyber criminals and the things that they're doing and holding people, uh, I'll say hostage with air quotes, but we need to be able to do that with the ransomware. We need people out there to do that. And, and the, the relevant studies that are being done here is exactly what we need. Thank you. Some of the students uh, that you mentioned on the teams, I've had the privilege of working with them, with Saipur, and I taught them. And I can say they're super, super smart. I, I bet. They're so smart. Sometimes it scares me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good problem to have, though. It, it really it is. Is. It's a very good problem to have. Um, I have a question that's more related to your work experience uh, with the Air Force. So in your role as the Vice Commander of the 16th Air Force, you were responsible for cybersecurity and the defense of the Air Force's portion of the DoD global network. Can you discuss your role uh, at the 16th Air Force in ensuring the readiness of Air Force personnel and its responsibility for cybersecurity? And can you also talk a little bit about what the key priorities and initiatives are within this command? Yeah, so I left so when I when I left working at 16th Air Force, my the commander of the organization at the time had very uh, distinct priorities that he published. You know, attentive leadership is so everybody understands what the commander's priorities are in support of all of those different missions that you talked about. So as a, as a vice, you know, executing uh, his, his intent and meeting his, his vision. Interestingly, to kind of back to your question is he had five priorities and the number one priority for him was to grow readiness. Um, and so we looked at, he talked about growing readiness, strengthening resilience, personal resilience and professional resilience, a maturing information warfare. We talked, we, we had mentioned that driving modernization, and then last but not least, creating our combat effectiveness because we are a, you know, a, a military organization. <clears throat> but what you talk about readiness, that's in incredibly uh, important. And it's so that when called upon to do so, whatever the nation asks of us, that those, those members are ready to perform their duties and responsibilities. And under his command, there was more than just cyber. He had many other responsibilities. He had the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance enterprise was under his him as well, as well as uh, some of our uh, uh, electromagnetic warfare capabilities too. But when you think about that readiness, it's absolutely critical so that they're doing that. And and when you when we talk about it in relation to cybersecurity, it's the personal readiness of the, the airmen and the guardians and anyone in our command to accomplish the mission. But the other part is that infrastructure that we already alluded to, the critical infrastructure. Is it ready for what it might have to in, encounter, endure? And so that's a continual uh, relationship. And as we know in tech, that cycle of uh, advancements mm -hmm. um, is just is rapid. Uh, we talk about Moore's Law, but I think Moore's Law, sometimes I wonder, okay, that, that was good at a time. Um, and the principles are sound, but things are happening awful quick when we come to the cyberspace and the innovations that's out there, both good and bad. So, um, again, more about your work experience. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Pentagon is at the heart of the U.S. defense operations. And how did your previous role as the director of cyberspace operations and warfighter integration at the Pentagon contribute to ensuring, again, the resilience and security of critical defense networks and systems? And as a follow-up, what were some of the key objectives there and some key responsibilities there that you undertook to enhance the DOD's cyberspace capabilities. Absolutely. So when you when you think about the Pentagon, it's the highest levels of our uh, military in the Department of Defense. 
all the service chiefs are located there as, as well as the, the Secretary of Defense. We have this, this huge enterprise. It's a corporate level. So my roles and responsibilities in there were largely for those, you know, policy guidance and the kind of the governance and advocating for funding for different things that were important to do is uh, trying to, you know, focus on different resources we needed for different efforts. Some of the things that I was really proud of that we accomplished back in my time during that that is still holding true today, and that was our drive to complete the creation of the Cyber Mission Force, the CMF. And so the way that U.S. Cyber Command had done it at that time is they said, okay, we're going to have a, each of the services are going to be responsible for producing a certain amount of teams, and that will make up the Cyber Mission Force that then U.S. Cyber Command can use. And some of those were the those teams that the Cyber Command would say, okay, we're going to put them out on this mission. Um, and then as well as some of those teams would still focus on um, the Air Force and Air Force capabilities. But the creation of that to become fully operational capability, uh, fully operational capable at that time was a big drive and something that I was pretty proud of. And then the other one is the continued advocacy uh, for funding uh, and to explain to people the importance of the foundation of our IT networks and that it is actually an operational, it's a command and control imperative. If you want to be able to talk to your forces anywhere in the field, whether it be with data and email and or voice, you have to connect in this world. And that is all completely, completely um, based on a strong and resilient and secure network. And so to be able to fight for the funding and, and explain why is this important and why is this more important than that was a, it was a exciting and interesting three years to operate at that kind of corporate level. And it wasn't just with the service. Uh, oftentimes it was also with the joint community, the other services, as well as the Department of Defense. And so for students leaving here, that if they find themselves, whether in civil service or whether in, in a military organization, tremendous opportunity to make a difference, to be able to help, to be able to shape that. To really lots of different ways to do that with some of the big programs that they were doing. I have a bit of a more broad question for you, but I think you'll have a great answer to it. What lessons from military tactics can cyber defense professionals apply to their work? You know, there's so many, and when you think about some of the you know principles of warfare or, or, or things that we've studied, but it is, it's a, it's it's terrain. The, the, the cyber it, it is terrain, and whether that is um, through the through the spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, it, again, we talked about Wi-Fi devices or satellite communications and all of that technology. It's all terrain, and if you're in the cybersecurity business, you have to make sure that uh, the things that are passing through it are what you want it to be. Whether that's through uh, you know conventional cable, whether that's through fiber, or whether it's through the air. Uh, but some of those things that you find are uh, some of those basic principles, such as surprise or defense in depth, or even defending forward. And the, the partnerships, the international relationships that you create are, 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 are critical to be able to say, because if you're one of my closest allies and I'm going to be networked with you, then we want to make sure if you're able to pass me information that that's secure and safe. Um, or in times of crisis, if I just want to communicate with you, how am I going to be able to commute sensitive information on a, a bilateral level where I can communicate with you to say, hey, what's going on or this is happening? And how do we establish that communication network and that architecture 
so that we know at the national level, these are leaders of countries, leaders of, of institutions, that they're able to have those communication capability. There's a role there's a role for the things that everything, all the types of studies and the programs that are in here that are directly related to that. Thank you very much. So this is, I want to say somewhat of a broader kind of question. So like you'd mentioned, you know, the cyber threat landscape is ever evolving, ever changing. Um, can you share an example of a significant cyber incident or a threat that you encountered during your career and how your team or what steps your team took to mitigate that threat or that event? Sure, and a little difficult to go into some of the specifics just for, for different reasons, but I think that some that, that your audience would, would understand, and they're really good case studies to look at what's happening right now, are some of the significant things we sound. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll say two and a half. One would be the solar winds. So we saw the crisis with solar winds when we happened and we realized that vulnerability. And, and it's also to see how that is communicated, right? So which version is vulnerable versus it isn't just any solar winds, um, but some of the different things and to make sure you understood that. Um, then the other one, I think, which was, it was a significant event, but seemed it happened and then it went away, was the colonial pipeline attack that yeah. we saw as well. And how that, what that did with our economy, what that did to the, but we've seemed to have, we went right past it really quick. Um, but significant events. And and then the other one that we often encounter, that we know often is probably not appropriate, but that we have encountered in, in, in recent times is intellectual property theft and how adversaries or criminals are trying to, to, to gain and take that information. And so when you look at those and say, so how would we respond? The Department of Defense it is not a law enforcement agency. By law, it's not allowed to be a law enforcement agency. And at the same time, the Department of Defense isn't able to come to the defense of private industry. And so that's an interesting dynamic, but our civilian leadership in our country will, uh, will ask the military experts. They might ask Cyber Command, hey, we had an incident in cyber, what are we gonna do about it? And some of those are those special relationships that we have with other agencies uh, whether it be law enforcement agencies like the FBI, or whether it be on an international level with partners to say, hey, are you seeing this? But but all of those things, the first thing you're going to do, it's almost if you use, sometimes I use the analogy of the house, that whether it's your house that got broken into, or it's your neighbor's house that got broken into, but you get on the phone and say, how did they get into your house? And they said, hey, they figured out how to open the screen door in the back. Like, oh my gosh, I have two screen doors in the back. And so you go, okay, are they secure? We would recommend you do the following. And it's being able to take the team that you're leading to look at what are those vulnerabilities that exist. And then once you've identified, oh my gosh, we have the vulnerability or thank goodness we don't have the vulnerability, then you go about solving that problem as rapidly as you can. And that's sometimes tough because then it turns around and it's the same thing. Hey, and now I need more resources or I need more funding because what I need is that hardware, is that software, what's the fix and how long does it take to implement? Um, we have lots of priorities on that list um, and lots of CVEs, lots of cyber vulnerabilities that are out there. And it's a bit of triaging of, you know, what am I going to fix first? Is it 
Um, is there just a cut in my screen and I'm okay because I've, I've, I've got a camera on it to make sure no one comes in? Uh, or is it a leaky roof that the whole house is about to come down? Uh, and, you know, every one of those has a different response. And then you have that tiered level, right? As you go, okay, how bad of a threat is it? Uh, but we've seen it. You, I mean, you've, we've seen it in the commercial sector. There's too many cases to look at with ransomware, criminal activity. Um, and then, as I alluded to, uh, the intellectual property theft, because sometimes you would think, um, and this is important, too, for small businesses that you partner with here for the institution or as your students go out and work, is clear defense contractors, right? Small companies that are out there working with the government, and are they vulnerable? How secure is their network? Maybe an adversary doesn't look at the big Department of Defense, but instead says, hey, we'll just go after one of the contractors that's building something for us. So we've got to help everybody in part of that network to be secure. So the house analogy, great example, because that helps people understand how you, you know, prioritize. House, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that weighted scale of assessing your priorities or or even rating your threats. Oh, this sure. is the most likely to occur, or this has the most potential to have the most impact on you know our company. That's a great example. Excellent. And what you'd mentioned with the um, preparing and communicating, I think one of the problems that we normally see is that organizations or any type of organizations, they're kind of reluctant to share that they have been under attack. That brings down their market value, that brings Absolutely. down the confidence in the public, in their company. And I wish there were an easier way or to kind of, or I wish people would move past that mentality to say- Feel more comfortable in helping other people out exactly. to avoid the same scenarios. Exactly. Because this is how it is going to be going forward is everything's going to be you know online and we need to be able to Share state where we're able to protect ourselves and lend resources so others can protect themselves. I think so. And I think that even on that note, that it's we are always we're only limited by our creativity. Exactly. And uh, which is why I know the, the next generation of students coming out can help us mm -hmm. with that. And I think you touched on many reasons why you'll find, you know, corporations are hesitant to, to share that. But there's also ways that they can do that safely through building a team and sharing. And I think some of those venues exist it's just not necessarily in the public space yeah. for, for the reasons not for, just because of the reasons of they don't want to um, lose confidence and credibility in their business model it's understandable yeah yeah and I think that topic um, you know one of the things you mentioned is why we talk so much about things like vendor management and cyber defense exactly. you know it's so important and it's if you look at a lot of the big data breaches that's where really the root problem of where some of them came from mm -hmm. yeah. kind of gets into, you know, one of your teaching interests, Kanthi, you know, cyber law, you yeah. know, maybe data breach laws need to be mm. tightened up a bit. So there isn't so much of that. There's I, almost, they're almost companies are kind of being allowed to be hesitant, you know, in some ways. So yeah. anyway, not to full on go into that. Of but, course right. not, but it, it brings well, forward a good point too. Third party management is as important as securing your own network. You need to have good relations with third parties or those vendors who have good security posture themselves. And then to bring in the law portion of it, I think cyber law is still evolving. There still mm -hmm. needs to be more done in the field. And I think we will see a lot more adjustments or advancements in that field soon. Agreed. Um, 
You've held positions in various locations around the world, uh, including South Korea, Germany, and Qatar. How did these international assignments shape your perspective on global military operations and collaboration with these international partners? Absolutely. It, in a number of different ways, it, it shaped my, my views early in my career. Uh, as an example, you mentioned living in Germany, and I was part of a NATO organization, a flying organization. And we had, at that time, 13 NATO nations working together to accomplish a similar mission. Those partnerships are, are, are amazing to be able to do that and people work together and at that human level to realize, hey, we do have a shared set of values, a shared set of what we think. How do we do this together? And it's, it's, it, it is really important. And we've, in the context of cybersecurity and the, the IT business, it's equally important for us to be able to have the ability to share, just like we talked about with industry and, and you know, even somewhat proprietary information or networks and how companies would share that with one another. It's the same thing with, the, with, other, with other governments, that we need to be able to share technology or to advise one another on adversary tactics. And so that you can say, what have you seen and what have I seen? I think a great example of that that's that's very successful that you can that your audience could read about is the initiative that uh, U.S. Cyber Command has with Hunt Forward Operations, and this is where those partnership with other nations that have said, "Hey, America, hey, U.S. Cyber Command, we would welcome you coming to our nation and getting on some of our networks and helping to see." if there's any malicious actors that are on here. And you can read about those instances and those things that have done. Um, and then for them to be able to take things that maybe we find and be able to update that with the, with the, with the larger community about um, techniques or different viruses or malware that we find out there. Lots of opportunity to build confidence with one another and then also to get, uh, you know, get the bad guy out. Um, and it is, and some of it is, some of it's on network, which is one thing. And then some of it's basic education, depending on the nat nature of this. But we have, the United States has so many friends and allies that are out there. And to build that relationship and in those, uh, in that domain of cyberspace is, is really, really important. And uh, yeah, something I was proud of to see that we were able to, and some of those relationships are sensitive with different companies countries, of course, but but you can you can see the example, tangible examples open are, are, are available out there in the open press. That's very cool yeah. that you can just go out there and find all this information. Yeah, and, I, and I, you know, the, the other part of that, when you, you know, we talk about, and we've talked about cybersecurity, but then the other part of this, when you think about the mission set and the different things that, that you do in cyberspace, there is, as we know, there's offensive cyber operations, and then there's the, the defensive cyber operations. So that that difference in defensive cyber operations from from the traditional cybersecurity of a network or or a device, but the defensive operations to go out there that I would consider the hunt forward operations to be, where you're out there and it goes back to military principle of defending forward. You go forward into that space that's outside and say, hey, we're going to defend here because it just increases kind of our defense and, oh, by the way, helps them at the same time. It's a really good mutually beneficial a relationship between the partners that invite us in to help them. Well, I'll admit I was kind of inspired to include this question um, because of some of the research some of our cyber defense PhDs are, are working on. But 
uh, one of the significant issues uh, facing cyber defense uh, is staffing uh, of cybersecurity positions. And, you know, just in your opinion, what do you think can or, or should be done to help with this? And, you know, what did you kind of do to help out in this area when you were working in the military? Well, I think at the national level, I'm impressed that it's recognized the criticality of this, of these skill sets, of these graduates, of these experts that are out there. And so we, we, we as a nation need them to work both in for uh, whether it be in government service um, or even industry partners that are working within the, the department um, or across any of our federal agencies. But interestingly, if you do, if uh, some of the research that's out there, Congress has given, in the case of the DOD, they've given services authority to do many things uh, to aid in both recruitment and retention. And it's really, really hard. So we talked about priorities in the beginning of my boss, and he talked about growing ready, readiness. Part of that readiness was keeping the skilled workforce that you have. Um, if you train a bunch of people and they leave to go work for a high-paying institution that the federal government cannot compete with, um, or um, a public university has a challenge competing with, uh, you know, it's how, how do you retain those people? But Congress has given us ideas, everything from direct commissioning programs to rapidly commission people uh, to bring someone from the outside in as an, as an officer in the military that's more commensurate with this. We do this in the medical community. We'll go out and get specialists like a, an adonist or an oral surgeon, and we'll bring them in and give them higher rank, not supervisory responsibilities necessarily, but the higher rank for pay. Um, there's different means to give bonuses, uh, selective bonuses that can go into that. There's even promotions. It's written in there because the military officer promotions are confirmed by the Senate, but they still gave special provisions in there to say, hey, you could promote people based on their position. Now, there's a process that the services have to go through to do that, but but it's there. And then the other one is the rapid hiring. So they've given a lot of authorities for hiring government civilians directly into positions that don't have to go through all the competitive stages that you would with the normal government civilian position. And so we dabbled in all of these things. But the United States Air Force, not counting the broader Department of the Air Force with the Space Force, but you talk about the United States Air Force, you know, roughly 330,000 uh, people. It's a big institution. It's a big corporation. And to make some of these moves, you have the second and third order impacts that they have to think through. That's some of the challenges. So my frustration would be do it faster. Um, having been in the Pentagon, I understand why sometimes that's hard. But uh, and we'll talk about that. We can talk about in my, my discussion this afternoon of... Um, um, yeah, go fast. It's, it's what we've got to do. But it's out there. And and there's internships and abilities for people. If this is what you want to do, even and you don't have to do it in uniform, which is really important for people. But if you want to come in as a civil servant, there's those programs where you could rapidly move up. And then if you want to do that for a career, great. And if not, then if you want to go out into industry with that knowledge, there's, there's lots of opportunity. Great relevant question. Thank you. And thanks for the answer. Uh, so I'm going to kind of combine these next two bits. So, but what I want to ask you about, uh, so you originally had a degree in English, but obviously went into the Air Force for a number of years. Um, how has that English background impacted um, your strategy for effectively communicating uh, complex cybersecurity uh, issues to senior military and uh, civilian leaders? 
Uh, any methods or approaches that you've noticed that are particularly effective? Well, th thanks for that question as well. Uh, thanks for looking at my bio and understanding uh, where I grew up and, and what I did. Uh, and uh, I was just talking to your provost about that today, about kind of that evolution of uh, education and higher education and, and some of the different focuses. Because clearly, um, you know, Dakota State University is, is very much focused on uh, on many of the, the technological uh, fields of study that are out there. But to more specifically answer your question, um, so there's a trick in there somewhere for you that I guess I'll reveal here. So um, I actually started with a math focus. And so this is what happens when you're a 19 or 20 year old and you're allowed <laughs> to make your own decisions because your parents trust you with your own education. Um, and so um, I won't mention the class. I'll think about mentioning the class. But anyway, so I had a particular math class that frustrated me to no end at one day. And so I switched to English. So I have a math minor, okay. so I have that background. But I really enjoyed English, um, and I was never the, the talented writer. But what I what what studying literature did for me was I realized the critical thinking and the analytical thinking that goes into what someone is trying to impart through you in communication in the written word, and to do some of those things is just be is to be critical of what you're reading or watching. And one of my favorite classes with film is narrative to look at movies and go, okay, that's not a movie, that's a story. Who wrote the story? What's it about? And what are they telling you? And then to have to write about that mm -hmm. and to defend a position, those skill sets are really good. But then the other part of how have I leveraged that in, uh, in my career in the military, one of the things that is I have found myself becoming is a translator. So I grew up in aviation, flying in the back of large frame aircraft like the E-3AWACS or the E-8J STARS, different aircraft that our U.S. Um, Air Force operates. And so I grew up in that aviation community. When you look at the senior leadership of our United States Air Force, um, many of them are aviators uh, for good reason. Um, and so I found myself in that role as a translator. So as someone who grew up in that community, that as I became a general officer and I moved into cyberspace and IT and ISR and EW and all those acronym soup, I apologize <laughs> to your audience for. Um, but when you think about cyber, uh, information technology, uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations. When you think of all that, what I found myself doing is I am now the advocate to saying, let me explain to you why this is important. And I do an analogy like the house, mm. or I do a football analogy, or whatever I think speaks to that person, or I'll do a warfighting analogy. As simple as, hey, you have the greatest aircraft in the world and you wanted to bring it a bear against your adversaries. Well, what if someone could do something that would deny that aircraft the ability to take off? And you know what? They don't even have to touch the aircraft. After all, nothing, air gap doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> so there's that, so let's think about that. And then let's even think about the petroleum or the electricity it takes. Lots of different vulnerabilities. What, what do you care about there, boss? Um, so I think that's what it did. It made me a good translator, yeah. even though I don't have a uh, aptitude for foreign languages. Thanks. Okay, um, so uh, in the interest of keeping track of your time and your schedule for the day, we'll wrap it up with one more question. Okay. Over to both of you. Think. Sure. Um, this is more of a looking into the future kind of question. How, like... Over your career, you've seen the landscape of cybersecurity change a little bit and warfare evolve as well. What do you see in the future as challenges? What challenge? 
So the one thing that I think that is unique about the environment, and probably something I'll talk about this afternoon as well with, with some of the students and faculty, is the, is the change in the information environment. And it has changed dramatically when you look at this. Uh, and, and I don't just mean the news media, although there's a part of that. But what we found with, with, with our networks, with the Internet, and with cyber in general, is the ability to connect people across the globe. We're all connected. But with that comes great responsibility because what I find most uniquely different is the ability for any one of us in the room can actually reach out and touch another nation's population. You could post something and reach a huge audience that you could never reach before. And so that is powerful for good and that can be unfortunately powerful for bad. And then when you also combine that with the ideas of both misinformation and disinformation, it's very, it's very, it's a complex landscape. And so that landscape has clearly evolved in, in my time. Uh, and there is, there's, there's goodness in to be able to, to help people understand and to help those that require help. But, but there is great risk when you have people that are putting things out into the environment that are, just aren't true. And we could... We could, we could all probably come up with a good example of seeing something that goes, wow, that's not real. I know it's not real. Does anybody else know that that's not real? That that is, that's like, that's just not, that's fake, not fact. Um, even the use of words, you know, um, a bomb versus an explosion, which is fact. Yeah. If, you, if you make a headline that says a bomb went off and go, okay, or did an explosion go off? You know, the, this, the, those Goes words. Goes back to the critical thinking and analytical skills. Absolutely. Yep. So it is. It's different. But th those are the challenges, right? We're going we're gonna to figure out how to navigate that. Quite frankly, I think that um, uh, my generation is better than my parents' generation to think through that. And I think that the younger generation and the students that you have here at uh, Dakota State University are more equipped to do that than, uh, than I am. And so I look forward to the innovation and the ideas that are, uh, are discerning intelligent uh, next generation will, will bring for all of us. Thank you for answering all of our questions. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, this was excellent. Um, very informative and interesting, and I think a lot to digest for everyone. You're and welcome. Thank you to Major General Gaetica. Thanks. Um, it, it's great. I'm excited um, to, to have had the opportunity to, to talk to both faculty members, clearly are experts in this domain as well. Um, proud of what you're doing to uh, to educate them because you two are making a difference um, both for uh, for their lives. Um, but then when you look at the, you know, do something bigger, be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. I think both of you are doing that when you look at what you're doing for, for the institution and for, uh, quite frankly, for uh, uh, for our way of life and our ideals and beliefs and what we think. So you guys are doing great. I was proud to, uh, to be on this with you and thanks so much. And thank you, Jason Jenkins. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Thank, and thank you for watching our very first video episode. Uh, and if you enjoyed it, please subscribe.